Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Ray Carboni Sculpture and Woodworking with wood, bronze, and stone sculptures at the gallery and workshop, 460 Pigeon Hill Road, Stuben, Maine, raycarbonisculpture.com. It's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Democracy Forum with your host, Dan Luther, is up next. Good morning and welcome to the Democracy Forum. This is the sixth program in our series this year to broadcast at this time on the third Friday of most months. We're featuring topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Our conversation today is Distrust in Government, a Necessary Evil or a Weapon of Destruction. We'll talk about the waxing and waning of America's trust in government, why a little skepticism may be a good thing, how partisanship plays into the equation, and how too much distrust may be a self-fulfilling prophecy. We'll be taking your calls during the second half of the show, so stand by to join our conversation. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host for the Democracy Forum. Let me introduce our guests. Joining me in the studio today is Amy Freed. Um, Amy has been a guest on our show a few times before. She's professor and department chair in political science at the University of Maine. She's currently working on a book about the strategic uses of distrust in government that we can't all wait to read. Welcome, Amy. Great to be here, Anne. Joining us by phone today is Thomas E. Mann. Tom is Senior Fellow in Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution and Resident Scholar at the Institute of Governmental Studies at the University of California, Berkeley. His book with E.J. Dion and Norman Ornstein called One Nation After Trump, A Guide for the Perplexed, the Disillusioned, the Desperate, and the Not Yet Deported. Uh, That book is due out in paperback next month. Welcome, Tom. Happy to be with you, Anne and Amy. Uh, From California. It's earlier out there. Really appreciate it. It certainly is. (laughs) Hey, it's been a tough week for our federal civil service. On Monday, President Trump appeared to throw his own intelligence agencies under the bus in a press conference with Vladimir Putin. On Wednesday, we learned that the beleaguered and under-resourced IRS would throw up its hands and stop requiring donor disclosure from nonprofit political organizations. On Wednesday, the Washington Post reported that the VA was in the middle of a loyalty purge, reassigning top-level civil servants deemed insufficiently loyal to the president's agenda. These agencies perform vital public services, um, but they just can't seem to get any respect. According to Pew, the National Election Study began asking about trust in government in 1958. In those days, about three-quarters of Americans trusted the federal government to do the right thing most of the time. Trust began eroding during the 1960s amid the escalation of the Vietnam War, and the decline continued in the 70s with Watergate. It's now at an all-time low. So, Tom, do you want to take the first question? What's going on here? Trace the history of the waxing and waning. I mean, some suspicion of government probably goes back to the founding um, of our republic. But, I mean, how has this sort of ebbed and flowed over the several hundred years since? Well, Anne, when we, we 
talk about trust in government, uh, we're really forced to use as our baseline uh, the post-World War II period because there wasn't polling until just before that, and we only then began to get questions on trust in government. And so the uh, the 50s were relatively quiescent. Um, the intense partisanship uh uh, the hyper-partisanship of today was not evident then, and Dwight Eisenhower was certainly not a polarizing uh, uh, president. As you said, things began to change in the, the 60s, the war in Vietnam, the counterculture, uh, and then the Voting Rights Act, and Roe v. Wade, and uh, Watergate, and and so it's been a, a tumultuous period since then. And the real question is, if we had surveys going back, uh, say, to the pre-Civil War era and uh, to the period of the Gilded Age, we may have seen uh, seen periods of uh, great distrust in government then as well. So... We, uh, we shouldn't assume the norm is uh, high levels of, uh, of trust. What, I, what I'd say, though, is that, as you indicated, in the, in the current period, um, that is to say, uh, with the changes that have occurred in the last couple of decades, the increasing uh, partisan polarization uh, the negative partisanship that seems to motivate most people, the tribalism, and then with the election of Donald Trump, uh, there's good reason for people <laughs> to be uh, to be skeptical of going on uh, what's going on. At least some of them. The, the Washington Post count of the number of of lies or misstatements made publicly by the president and you know the first 18 months or so of his presidency is uh, numbers in the thousands now. And and uh, the episode in Helsinki and the aftermath uh, remind us all that um, we're in a very unusual period of time now with real threats to our democracy. And maybe one of one of the one of the things we should worry least about uh, is too much distrust. This is a period in which Americans uh, have reasons to be greatly concerned about their government. Amy, let me ask you the same question, sort of what's the ebb and flow of this, and how does our current period of suspicion fit into the historical context? Well, I would agree with an awful lot of what uh, Tom had to say, and certainly we don't have polling from those earlier periods, but I'd also uh, point to a few other things. One is that that whole period uh, leading up to when we do have polling from, we're coming out of... You know, we've come out of World War II. We've come out of the New Deal and the Great Depression. And that's a period where there's a great deal of both uh, governmental effort that people approve of and like and support. Um, and the, and also during World War II, there's an awful lot of efforts by 
the federal government in order to promote support for the war effort um, and tie Americans to the state in various ways. Um, and that goes to the kind of argument that Doug Harris and I make in the book that we're working on, that distrust and trust are both built and unbuilt. I mean, there certainly are events and issues, things that happen, whether it's economic downturns or uh, maldistribution of wealth or various scandals, things like that, that play into people's sense of trust or distrust. But there are also efforts to promote trust and to promote distrust. Huh. You know, somebody um, saw the notice for this show go out and one of our league members wrote in that he had worked at, at, in a career in the federal government as a manager of disaster relief his whole life. And in that role, he says he encountered distrust in government in a very perplexing way that people who had just lost everything and needed help in the most desperate way were reluctant to seek help from the federal government. They had to be convinced to ask. They were completely sure that they were going to be treated badly by a bunch of uncaring bureaucrats. So somehow this notion that the revenuers or the federal government or something, I mean, these people, A, don't know what they're doing and are not in it for the public good, seems to be, you know, from this example, something very deep-seated in the American psyche. Tom, what do you think? Well, uh, uh, I'd have to say that and Amy knows this literature uh, uh, well and better better than me. But the the actual studies of citizens' contact with government when they're really dealing with them on matters, say, uh, pertaining to Social Security and Medicare or problems with this and that, show that they they come away from that with a positive feeling. The, the, the animus that uh, is measured in polls toward government is as, as much uh, a reaction to the kind of talk that people hear and pick up about what's going on. And, and when you have the intensity of the, of the battles that uh, that are playing out when uh, when the rhetoric uh, uh, becomes so extreme, when one party doesn't accept the legitimacy uh, of the other party, then then you're going to get these this kind of feeling that you can't trust government. But the the reality is uh, most Americans, uh, and this has been true for a long time, have uh, have somewhat conservative views about how big government should be and what it should do in a broad, general, abstract, philosophical sense. But in terms of their encounters with the government uh, and their reactions to whether government should continue or increase uh, their level of activity in, in various areas that affect citizens or decrease it always end up uh, on the former side. That is to say, Americans are, are philosophically conservative, skeptical of government distrustful, but 
operationally, uh, uh, they want more of it. So <laughs> it's um, I wouldn't I wouldn't make too much of of anecdotal comments about about people's people's uh, uh, perception of whether they can deal with uh, government successfully. Uh, I remember that uh, the need here is to separate the abstract from the specific. I see Amy's nodding over here. So go ahead, Amy. Well, yeah, I mean, that's absolutely right. You ask people, do they want government to do particular things, you know, help the poor more or, you know, do more on health care or, you know, ensure safe food supply, prescription drugs safe, you know, go through a huge list of things, environmental protection. People want lots of things from government. But then if you say, you know, what do you think of government in general? The, the the abstract is much less popular. And the same thing goes when it comes to taxes. People don't like the idea of, you know, often, you know, would not like uh, taxes to increase or think that pe- the government doesn't use tax revenue correctly. But then you ask about specific kinds of taxes, they're much more supportive. So there's definitely this this gap between the abstract and the particular, and that's been found for you know really decades since those since those studies have been done. Um, absolutely. And if, if I could just jump in, I, I think Amy's uh, Amy's right here. I was reading this morning uh, about uh, interesting politics in Oklahoma, one of the more conservative states in the country. The, the mayor of Oklahoma City is uh, is running for for governor. It, it turns out that he was a conservative Republican mayor who said we've got to raise taxes in this town to to really build up the uh, the public infrastructure of our city and the the basis for economic growth and well being and. It turned out the the city's residents are are very appreciative of that, and now are quite supportive of raising taxes because they've seen, as people in a number of uh, metropolitan areas uh, have been, that efforts to to rebuild economies and rebuild sort of civil society. Uh, takes action that includes uh, raising taxes sometimes. <laughs> it goes completely against the, the ideology of the Republican Party, really, since, uh, since the early 1980s. You have to pledge to cut taxes and never raise taxes if you want to be a Republican. And, and, and I think that's based on a, a really a distrust of government and a belief it should always be smaller. But but people around the country, uh, in 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 cities uh, and regions, are finding that it's more complicated than that, and and uh, a healthy society ends up having a. Uh, you know, a private economy and and a vigorous uh, a vigorous government to uh, 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 to ensure uh, uh, its uh, its its strength and its uh, the equities and that 
public goods are provided, uh, I, I think that's important to remember. That's quite apart from the intense partisan battles that we witness every day in Washington. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is distrust in government, a necessary evil or a weapon of destruction. Our guests are Amy Freed, Professor and Department Chair in Political Science at the University of Maine, and Thomas E. Mann, Senior Fellow in Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution and Resident Scholar at the Institute of Governmental Studies at the University of California, Berkeley. So, Amy, go ahead. You had a thought there before the break. Um, you know, in the partisanship and um, trust and distrust in government, like, does it turn out that Republicans distrust government more when Democrats are in charge and Democrats distrust government more when Republicans are in charge? Or is this sort of a thing that waxes and wanes for other reasons? I mean, is it just partisanship or is it another dimension there? Uh, well, there's definitely some relationship with partisanship when you have uh, presidents who are Republicans. Republicans' trust in government goes up and vice versa. So there's certainly some some element of that, um, you know, as as part of the overall situation of trust and distrust. But I'd, I'd also say that, you know, there are points at which the anti-government attitude, there's diminishing returns with it, uh, with the example that Tom was giving in Oklahoma, for ex- you have uh, the those teacher strikes out there where they were being paid very little, and uh, the you know the, the the strikes went on for quite a while, and there was a lot of public support for it, and there the you know which led to some increasing salaries, but there had been cuts and cuts and cuts over many years, and to the point that schools often were only open four days a week. And the uh, salaries were extremely low and benefits were extremely low. And at some point, people said, well, you know, here they are on strike. And even though it's Oklahoma, a very, very conservative state, they were willing to support, uh, you know, more state resources for those for those individuals. So, you know, partisanship certainly is important, but it also somewhat also depends on who's in charge, what the issue is, what the circumstances are. And, you know, in some of the research that we've done, uh, my colleague Doug Harris and I have done, you know, you look at particular presidents who are Republicans uh, who, like, even though they have said that they don't support very much government action, something like, say, health care, they, they, they end up passing policies that have to do with health care. I mean, Reagan passed catastrophic care insurance, which, you know, later was repealed. Um, which is itself a very interesting story. But then also George W. Bush passed a prescription drug benefit in Medicare. And uh, so sometimes when you you have uh, the control over government, then even if you've ideologically been opposed to government involvement, you'll you'll tend to support it. Uh, Some of that is for political reasons and some of it is simply pragmatism. So do the part, when we talk about sort of weaponization of distrust, have both parties been, um, I guess guilty is not the right word, but have both parties used distrust in government as a political tool in the past? 
I'd say maybe to some extent, but we really see a much greater use among conservatives because, for one thing, they want less government and they're less interested in government doing things. So it fits with that underlying ideology. But when it comes, well, you know, what we talk about are, are four particular strategic uses of distrust in government. Uh, one is organizational, where it's used to help build organizations and cement coalitions that are part of uh, a particular party or movement, uh, you know, conservative movements that distrust becomes sort of the glue that holds it all together. Uh, sometimes that's tied to, you know, anti-tax policies, which is part of that. Uh, it's used as an electoral message, in other words, to win elections, to uh, mobilize particular voters using messages of distrust. Certainly saw that with Donald Trump, but you see that uh, other times you go back to the Republican Revolution 1994 when Gingrich led the takeover of Congress when Clinton was president. It's also used strategically as part of institutional battles and arguing which body uh, should have more power. So you see flips between arguing Congress should be ascended versus the president um, and uh, also certainly in policy battles like that's not – Let's not expand health care because you can't trust government, mm -hmm. socialism, death panels, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, it falls into the uh, often distrust is used in those four ways, organizational, electoral, institutional and policy. And, and it helps if you have a highly polarized environment as we've gotten more and more polarized. And, of course, the work of um, of Tom with with Norm Ornstein shows that that's a that's asymmetric polarization that the right has moved much further off on its own than the left. I mean, the left is also more distinctive, and Democrats are <clears throat> more liberal than they used to be. But conservatives and Republicans have really moved off to the right. Go ahead, Tom. That's you. <laughs> Uh, well, Amy said uh, many, uh, many. I think quite, uh, uh, quite accurate and informative things about uh, about uh, partisanship and uh, and trust. Uh, she mentioned our our work on it's even worse than it looks, uh, and there's just no question but that the Republican Party both because of its overall philosophy, kind of libertarian uh, uh, views, but, but also its association with, uh, uh, with a sort of strong anti-communism and a, 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 a religious conservatism um, uh, was, was, was tending to attack government more as a as a strategy of mobilizing, and Newt Gingrich was really the champion of that. I, I came to know him when he first uh, first was elected to Congress. Uh, that's before you all were even born. But, no, uh, not really. <laughs> I saw him and started having dinners with him, and and Newt had a strategy to so reduce trust in Congress. Uh, uh, to so attack it as corrupt and and illegitimate, and uh, as a as a way of ending a, 
decades-long uh, dominance of Congress by the by the Democrats, and he, he used rhetoric and tactics and strategies that have now become a part of uh, the Republican Party's arsenal of, uh, of political weapons, and it's. Uh, I mean, it's really quite ugly and hateful, and and I'd add one thing that we haven't yet talked about that is underlies uh, much of this, and and that is the the reshaping of the coalitional bases of the mm-hmm. two parties, and in particular the uh, uh, the role of race. Um, uh, the 50s were peaceful, uh, and Americans were trustful, but things weren't going so well for African Americans. They yeah. they still uh, lived with the remnants of, uh, of Jim Crow, uh, and uh, they, they were just kind of, yeah, Americans may have been trustful in periods of the 20s, but but go into African-American communities uh, and neighborhoods and you'll, you'll, you'll get very different reactions. But now, since the Voting Rights Act and the, the sort of realignment of, of groups, uh, Democrats are, are the party of, that represents minorities, African-Americans, Latinos, Asians, and Muslims and and others, and that has has really set up a divide that that makes efforts to unify us e pluribus unum is 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 a lot harder now, and and the the intensity of negative feelings uh, has. Mm-hmm has grown so much that it's not that people are loyal of their parties because they're so loving of them. It's because they hate the other side. It really is a, is a form of tribalism. And that is something that, that, uh, president Donald Trump has, uh, uh, has certainly made his successful way to national politics on. And, and uh, is as disruptive and tribalizing and polarizing a, a president as uh, as we've ever had. So we're we're now at the point of talking not just about distrusting government. We're talking about withered democracy. Do we do we have uh, enough um, checks and balances to contain uh, what would be seen as violations of of, uh, of democratic behavior, and and thus far the weak link seems to be that the first branch of government, the Congress, being controlled both houses uh, by the Republicans, are 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 not up to the task. Their their incentives are to keep uh, on good terms with the base of the party, who support Donald Trump by 90% or more um and 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 therefore the the concern is that enough citizens get mobilized uh and care enough about this and there's signs that this is happening that uh that we will get 
one of the branches of Congress, at least controlled by the Democrats, which will then provide incentives to do the kind of oversight uh, and containing and constraining of illiberal activity that will uh, that will preserve our democracy. It's it's gotten that serious. Do you have anything you want to add or should I ask another question, Amy? Uh, well, I would just, yeah, I would just add that there's there's definitely this situation that the only way to hold the president accountable uh, is is to elect Democrats. And you're seeing that being said by people who have been long associated with the Republican Party, but who have pulled away from the party now and, you know, either call themselves never Trump Republicans or simply call themselves independents. And that, by the way, that tendency for people to no longer identify as Republicans is a is certainly part of why you have these very high numbers when it comes to support among Republicans for Trump. So when we see, oh, 90 percent of Republicans approve of Trump, part of what's happened is that you've You've seen people who know, who have disassociated themselves with the party. That that these are not you know static categories uh, that people don't you know people do move in and out of them. And so you know and and we saw this somewhat uh, we've seen this somewhat in other periods too. But you know that that group of people who call themselves independents can be people who just are just you know they're not they're not they've moved from one party to another and they're in this kind of holding pattern they may move into another party they move back to their original party but right now uh the the numbers of independents have gone up as the num- as the percent overall of the population of republicans has gone down and that means that the people who are still there in the republican party are the more pro trump republicans so there's really no possibility or very little possibility of through primaries to pick people who would be republicans who would hold trump accountable so it has to be done by electing people who are who are not Republicans, and you know that very well could happen in November. Uh, but on the other hand, you know we have such a uh, system of that between the settlement patterns uh, of of people through the country and gerrymandering that you, Democrats would need uh, much more than just a you know bare majority of overall votes to get a majority of the seats in the House. I mean, it's so hard to have any conversation on any topic these days that does not turn toward electoral politics. I mean, that's sort of the moment that we're in. Um, but I, I, I want to raise the question after the, I'm going to take a break here, but I want to raise the question after the break regarding distrust for government. I mean, this is so interesting because we're talking on the one hand about distrust in government being so high and more vigilance being required for the benefit of democracy that checks and balances and oversight have to be strong and reliable. You know, on the other hand, we're also talking about a situation in which um, the functioning of democratic institutions is being almost purposely eroded to the point where people, it's not worthy of our trust anymore. So I want to bring that up after the break, but let me just take a, a station break here. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERUFM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is distrusting government, a necessary evil 
or a weapon of destruction. I think we're sort of coming to the point that it may be both. Um, our guests are Amy Freed, Professor and Department Chair in Political Science at the University of Maine, and Thomas E. Mann, Senior Fellow in Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution and Resident Scholar at the Institute of Governmental Studies, the University of California, Berkeley. Um, at this point, I'd like to invite uh, your calls uh, today. You can join the conversation by calling toll-free 866 866- Six two five nine three seven eight, or if you're local, you can call four six nine zero five zero zero. We have just one listener line open, so if you get through, um, please take your question, your answer off the line, so that others can join in. And if you get a busy signal, just be patient; you'll get through eventually. Um, again, that's eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. So back to that, Amy. It's a uh, distrust is something that you need in order to keep things working right. But then, on the other hand, it's a weapon that can be used to make institutions dysfunction. I mean, I think this has happened with the IRS. It's been so gutted that it can't even do a good job. Therefore, we hate the IRS. Therefore you know, cut it even further. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. I mean, yeah, we need we need to have a certain amount of resources uh, for, for things to function, given our very complex society and all of the different institutions and elements of government that have been created. On the other hand, we do need a certain amount of skepticism that's part of being a good citizen. And the idea that people are imperfect and need to be uh, limited and controlled when they're in government is embedded in our constitution. Madison says we have to should set up a system where ambition counteracts ambition because you can't depend on people simply being uh, good people who are devoted to the common good. So you know we we need uh, you know to have those checks and balances as as part of it. I mean. One thing I'd say, uh, an additional thing related to what we were just talking about before the break is that uh, one of the things I think that we see with President Trump is that as he is trying to promote distrust in a broad variety of institutions, whether it's the press, whether it's in government, talking about the deep state, talking about the press about the enemy as the enemy of the people, is that simultaneously he's trying to set himself personally up as the object of trust. And I think that is something very different, that it's not trust in the president as the leader of the government, and therefore you're going to trust the government because this is the leader of the government. It's highly personalistic. And this is, I think, very, very unusual in American politics. Certainly people loved previous presidents or supported previous presidents in a a way. You'd, You'd see people, you know, having put up pictures of Franklin Roosevelt in their homes or John F. Kennedy. I think certainly there was a great deal of admiration among Obama's supporters for him. But um, that wasn't at the same time really tearing down the government and tearing down other fundamental institutions, institutions. that are important yeah. of, uh, to democracy. Hey, we have a caller on the line, Frank from Lemoyne. Go ahead. You're on the air. I want to start off by saying I love the IRS. <laughs> you Me believe too. that? Anyways, <laughs> tell Tom Mans that I have an extra seat in my RV. I've been packing while listening to him. I'm going to, <laughs> I'm going to Canada. Tom and I were roommates in 1965 at the New York World's Fair. Get out. 
No, I'm not getting out. He remembers. And he's out there. <laughs> I in the do way. indeed. Wow. <laughs> yeah, well, I talked to you a couple of years ago before your 50th reunion, and I didn't show up. But I'm, you know, a couple of years younger than you, remember? But anyways. <laughs> so while you're out there in Berkeley, you ought to go up to Monterey and look up Mikey, Mike Fisher. He's been there for 40 years. Unbelievable. <laughs> anyway. I will. Yeah, well, were you ever going to retire, Tom? You must be 105 by now. Stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is no retirement anymore I, for people like us, right? It's just a question of whether we do it for pay or we do it because that's who we are and what we do. Yep. Exactly. Well, thank you, Tom, for what you do. Thanks and, for calling, Frank. Did you have a okay. question or just a no, howdy? No, I just wanted to say hi to Tom. We, that's, we've talked twice in the last 45 years and it's been on a radio station. Well, uh, Tom, thank you Tom so much, Frank. Thanks. So. <laughs> okay. So let's let's pick up on this purposeful undermining of institutions and the purposeful, I guess, um, gutting of institutions and defanging of institutions. I mean, is that a strategy? Well, uh, boy, go, go ahead, Tom. Amy's uh, Amy's point was was so important. Uh, we are developing a cult of personality. I mean, we heard it during the campaign. Only I can fix it. And Trump obviously cares very much about his own, his own popularity, his own standing, his own prerogatives. Uh, and it, uh, it's strongman politics. It's, it's a very autocratic style of of leadership. Now we've seen in the in the last week he's had to back down from three uh, somewhat outrageous uh, things he said because of the overwhelming reaction from other politicians and uh, and activists, including Republican ones. So it it's it's encouraging to see that. Uh, uh, that feedback and the negative feedback and, if you will, distrust. Uh, uh, Americans have much to be distrustful of in, in the kind of leadership that is developing in our national politics. And, and uh, uh, so, as you introduced initially, there are two sides of the coin – of trust and distrust, and and both have positive and negative elements to them. Amy, you want to comment on that? Uh, one thing that I would add to that as well, and I think you know, this absolute, uh, Tom's absolutely right on um, with this, is is the element of the mass media, where you know, obviously, we know that people choose their media. And people can put themselves in these media bubbles and you see the rise of right-wing media. And, uh, you know, back in the Gingrich days, it was talk radio that was most important. And now, you know, you could point to uh, the whole Fox empire, other sorts of uh, media like Breitbart and some more, you know, really pretty more far-right media um, where people, you know, get their facts, get their information, tend to hold certain beliefs. It's very hard to dislodge, dislodge their particular beliefs. And it, that is part of creating this whole very tribalistic, this tribalistic world that we live in. Um, you know, I mean, I remember, 
you know, many presidents who would say things that sometimes were not true and they would be fact-checked and often the White House would have to acknowledge it. Sometimes people would continue to say things that weren't true. And I'm talking about both Republicans and Democrats, but most of the time there was a certain amount of chagrin about that. Um, and now uh, you have the president who very, very rarely backs down and he's got a whole set of media to back him up and people who are convinced that any other media are simply fake news. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It looks like we have another caller coming and I'm waiting for Amy to let me know who it is and then we'll take that call. Here she comes. It's David from Brooklyn. Go ahead, David. You're on the air. Hi, thanks. And uh, two things I'm going to say and then I'm going to get off the line. Uh, one is I, I really take issue with the, the uh, very frequent use of the word tribalism in a derogatory sense on this program. Uh, I think we really need to think about a little bit what some of the positive aspects of tribalism, which is basically good neighborliness, uh, might have to offer us. And not uh, try not to diss movements or tendencies on the basis of their being tribalistic. That's one thing I'd like to say. The other thing is that if you do posit that there is such a thing as a deep state uh, which is, of course, a debatable question, but many would hold that there is such a thing. Uh, and if you follow from that, that the deep state is totally skilled at manipulating us, uh, and you take from that the the uh, the uh, ascendancy of a cantankerous individual who, uh, as a pastime, a psychological failing, if you must, uh, uh, has to take issue with uh, uh, government in a lot of ways. Uh, I think we have to keep open to the possibility that, not that maybe not necessarily that he's on to something intellectually, but that there may be such a thing as a form of government which has perhaps even effectively if uh, achieved a, a military coup of this country while we were, you know, busy playing party politics and didn't notice it. And in that sense, I think it's very, very healthy to be quite skeptical of government. I appreciate both of those comments very much, David. Let's take them one at a time. Would somebody like to pick up the uh, comment on defending tribal loyalty? Amy, go uh, sure. I mean, I, I think it depends on what you mean by tribalism. If it does have to do with neighborliness and community, that's that's great. We need more of that, in fact, you know, more connections. Maine is a is pretty good that way as a as a state with our our small towns or traditions of um, you know, people connecting to each other and, and really in, probably in some ways more across party lines and difference uh, to the extent they exist uh, than than a lot of other places. But uh, I don't think that's what we mean by that or, you know, what, what Tom and I mean by that or what the political scientists would mean by that. It, it re- it's, it's more, um, you know, this kind of real separation from others and uh, unwillingness to listen to people outside of your, 
your setting being in a, in a kind of media bubble. There are a number of different things that would go along with it. And and one of them is something that Tom mentioned earlier, which is this negative partisanship that you, you define yourself not just by what you're for, but who you're against. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other, the those outside of your group become more uh, not just, you know, friendly opponents and people who, who, who also um, – are trying to make the world better, but but you know very net. You see them in very negative terms, um, and that uh, so I appreciate that. And let's also pick up the, this concept of the deep state because I think you know where that came from, how long people have talked about it that way, and the deep um, mistrust that people have for the sort of hidden bureaucracy and what that means. Where does that come from, and when did that start to surface as a thing, Tom? It's a term that's been around for a long time. It, uh, um, it, it hasn't been applied to the United States as much uh, until recently as, as in other countries and other sort of more authoritarian systems. But there's, you know, it's, it's in in general, a belief that government sets itself apart from the people and is not sufficiently held accountable by the people through the electoral representational uh, process. Um, um, ironically, what we're getting now is... Uh, is uh, Something I call cacistocracy, uh, uh, which is government by the worst. Uh, that is to say, we're denigrating uh, truth, expertise, uh, career civil servants who sort of dedicate their lives to trying serving in a nonpartisan fashion. The elected officials were. We're bringing in people with conflicts of, uh, of interest. We've got evidence of kleptocracy, and we have real efforts to, uh, in effect, weaken the rule of law by setting the president apart from uh, that, attacking judges and, and, uh, and the FBI and the rest. Well, this has come from the political left in 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 other times when they're especially in the area of privacy and concerns about uh intrusive surveillance and monitoring uh as part of uh, anti-terrorism uh regime so there there are perfectly legitimate questions uh to ask about all of this but as as someone who spent his adult life looking at government, um, uh, you know, I think it's 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 good to be uh, to be attentive to the dangers of both sides of this dimension. But right now, what we're suffering from is is an explicit effort to break down the protections of of. of by various governmental bureaucracies that prevent individuals sitting in the White House from 
assuming they are in charge of everything. And and uh, uh, so my concern is less with the deep state right now. It's with the fact that uh, that representative bureaucracy is being weakened uh, by the attacks on it by the by the current administration. Hey, you're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther with the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this morning are Amy Freed, Professor and Department Chair of Political Science, University of Maine, and Thomas E. Mann, Senior Fellow in Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution and Resident Scholar, Institute of Governmental Studies, University of California, Berkeley. We're taking listener calls in this half of the show. If you have a question or comment, you can join our conversation by calling toll-free 866-625-9378. We were just talking um, in response to a listener question about the deep state, and I'm sort of old enough to remember the conspiracy theories surrounding the assassination of JFK and um, whether that was a deep state operation. So, I mean, this idea has been around a long time. Um, But Amy, you were making some notes while Tom was talking a minute ago. Go ahead and pick that up. Yeah, I would say uh, that, you know, one of the things that we're seeing right now uh, is kind of a turning away from some basic democratic practices that, uh, you know, in terms of wanting to open up government. So, you know, for a president who purportedly is troubled by the deep state that at the simultaneously his administration is making the the state less transparent you know where we uh it was just announced the other day the treasury department is not going to disclose some uh large donate large donations from nonprofits um and you know who the uh, who the donors are to those right. um specifically uh, so, you know, if you want to know what's what's going on, we should be knowing more. And there's also, you know, pulling down of, of data that's been compiled by experts that, you know, we would we would want to know what 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 there what there is and what's been what's been made available. Um, you, it's also just, you know, things like knowing who's going into the White House, the visitor logs that were uh, previously posted or no longer being posted you know, there's just a lot of information that's that's really that's really missing, and you know, there's there's certainly plenty of criticism to go around with the the powers of government and who's benefited over time. Uh, you know, a lot of research showing that you know really very uh, wealthy interests tend to have their views represented more in government. Doesn't seems a little like we would probably all nod our heads anyway. Right, say that's likely, but that's shown in that's shown in research. There's plenty of things that you can look at that that are problematic with 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 government. But it, I do not agree that somehow electoral politics is some epiphenomenon that there's you know it's unreal that it doesn't make any difference. It makes a huge difference who gets elected. Every president takes things one way or another, can't get everything done that he would like to do, but there's no doubt, and there's a lot of research showing it, that that certainly the president tries to do what he promised before he came into office, and it, and it does make a big difference who has control. If there was simply a deep state in control constantly, uh, you know, then you wouldn't see those kinds of shifts depending on who won. Tom? Uh, Amy's right. Uh, it's 
it's hard to imagine uh, a, a, a different U.S. national government uh, uh, between the last one and the current one. I was uh, last night. I was reading the text of the speech that uh, former President Obama gave uh, in South Africa on the centenary of. Nelson Mandela's uh, birth, and for the first time he spoke out, never once mentioned uh, Trump's name, but clearly talked about the broader uh, movement towards strongmen. We see it in Hungary and Poland and, and Turkey and the Philippines and Russia and Venezuela. Um, and now we're seeing it in uh, in the U.S. Uh, this is this is really a a challenge for the for the country. Uh, this is these are the most troubling times in government that I've I've lived through. Uh, I've never okay. We seen won't ask how anything old you quite <laughs> like this and. It's it's going to be a real challenge to see if it's possible in this in this environment in which there's there are questions about whether there is facts and whether there's truth and uh, you know if you don't believe in those then there's no basis for for sitting down and talking to others representing different interests and ideologies and. Uh, so, so, Tom, this, let me interrupt. A, let let a, me interrupt. We're in a real fight now. <laughs> I know. Uh, we have a, another caller on the line. That's why I wanted to, to cut in there. Star from Trenton, go ahead. You're on the air. Yeah, hi. I'll take this off the air. But um, I, I just want to thank uh, WRU and uh, the League of Women Voters for putting on this valuable show. Um, I do have a question. I'm sure you're going to get to it. I just wanted to make sure. Um, I, as we talk about the deep state, I think two of the hallmarks of that is probably lack of accountability and lack of transparency. And that's certainly evident in what we're seeing now. Um, you know, we often talk about checks and balances, and thank goodness we have, you know, checks and balances, and we don't need to worry about this, you know, um, this uh, all-powerful executive. But I think that obviously, as people are watching this, that we have uh, we have a subpoint uh, Congress, and our media is being attacked left and right, and now our judges and our judiciary are obviously uh, have been for some time. Um, have been uh, also, you know, uh, purposely uh, uh, um, managed uh, to benefit one party over another. But um, so my question is, um, how can citizens um, counteract this, uh, this effect? So I'll take my uh, call off the air. Thank you. Uh, do you want to go first, Tom? Yeah, I... I think what happens now in the months ahead at the level of the citizenry is uh, it will be determinative of what happens uh, to our democracy. And uh, I have to tell you, one of the most encouraging thing has has been the mobilization of millions of, uh, of people into new organizations and revitalizing old ones. Uh, it's not that 
we're going to have direct democracy that suddenly 130 million Americans are going to become unbelievably informed about what's going on. But two, three, four million additional activists uh, can make a huge difference. And and that's what's happening uh, across uh, across the country. Go ahead, Amy. Most what would Americans you say? Americans live in oh, sorry Tom. red or blue areas, and and they have their own views, and and it's 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 hard to make a difference. But if you begin to focus on where the possibilities of change are in the country, the swing. States and uh, and cities and districts and then you then you see that organization can make a huge huge difference. So I think citizens a ought to insist on the importance of truth, facts, evidence. Without that, we have nothing. And and secondly, right now with if they've come to the conclusion that Donald Trump and the Republicans have put American democracy at risk, uh, then they have to realize the only vehicle for changing it, or the best one, is is the party system. And that means the Democrats have to be in there so there's some political capacity and incentive to, to contain the damage that's... Uh, that's underway. Thanks, so, Tom. Let me give Amy a chance so to make a there. remark Get here. Active. Go ahead, Amy. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'd say we've seen a great profusion of activity in the, since the uh, 2016 election and in Maine in particular in this district with indivisible groups and such. And with the upcoming elections, there's going to be a uh, very clear choice. We have a you know toss-up uh, in the second district and in the longer run i think people are going to have to talk to each other in very real ways to uh talk about really how government is helping them in particular ways while retaining their skepticism which we also need thanks so much um we're running out of time this morning I want to thank you to our guest this morning, Amy Freed, Professor and Department Chair in Political Science at the University of Maine, Thomas E. Mann, Senior Fellow in Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution, and Resident Scholar at the Institute of Governmental Studies, University of California, Berkeley. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Thank you to Amy Brown, our engineer at WERU. Thank you to our listeners. Our website is lwvme.org for more information about this topic or to learn about other shows in this series. You can email us at downeast at lwvme.org. Thanks a lot. We'll see you here next month. Support for WERU comes from our generous listeners. Thank you.